Hello, everyone. It's good to be with you. I'm busy trying to make space here, so I don't stand on a mic and trip and um, have a bad experience. So good to be with you this morning. It's really lovely to see people in the venue. It's good to be an AM. I lead PM, as uh, Jeff said, and um, it's always such a privilege for me to be here. Now, um, my son, Nathan, was born, I think, seven or eight weeks ago, but roughly eight weeks ago, and it's his first time ever in church this morning. First experience of church ever. Now we can clap. I saw some clapping. I think that's worthy of clapping. I had a kid, and I brought him to church. I feel like my job's done. No, I'm joking. Um, please don't be strange or weird. I really want him to be a willing participant in this community in the future, so you can say hi and uh, greet him and, and make him feel welcome. That would be amazing. So um, my other daughter's like, kids rock for the very first time, and I'm like, oh, this is what worship feels like like without a kid running around. It's amazing. We don't have that in PM very often. Now, guys, we, after that, that intro from Tim Tucker, we, we, it's become clear that we're going to be talking about some heavy stuff this morning. And um, I'm really trusting God's grace to meet us in this space. But before we get there, I just want to step back and remind us that we are in this series on, um, on origins, where we're looking back at the beginning of most things, life and creation and male and female. And, and we're asking some big questions as we look back at the origin of, of many things. What is the purpose of, of everything? And the reason we're doing that is we find ourselves in a season where, where the walls can be closing in a bit on us and we can f- feel that we're losing perspective because it has been such an intense season, such an unusual season, that, that it, it just f- can feel a bit tight. We're literally stuck in our homes. We're literally being restricted on how much interaction we can have with each other. And that's why some of you at home and some of you in the venue, it's part of the restrictions that we're experiencing. And in that reality, what can happen is we can lose perspective. And one of the first things to happen when we lose perspective is leak, um, hope can start to leak out of us. Not leak hope out of us, hope leak out of us. And as we lose hope, when the perspective closes in, it can be a downward spiral. And one of the best things to do when you feel like you've lost perspective is to step back and just try and get a bigger glimpse of what's going on. What is reality in this moment? And, and going back to origins is going back to what the Bible has to say about God and how it all began. is, is our attempt to step back and try to look at the picture. And as we step back and look at how it all began and, and the promises and the might and the power of our creator God, our hope is that it wouldn't just speak about what happened then, but it would start to speak hope for what will happen and what is to come. And as we step back and look at the full picture of that, we'll be able to look at the season that we find ourselves in, the, the season of our life and the season we're experiencing as a world right now, and we'll be able to bring some of the truth of God into that moment that changes the way we engage with the season we're in, changes the way we feel about the season. And today, as, as we've, we've heard, we're going to be speaking about the origin of death. And next week, we're going to be speaking about the origin of evil. And we've just read from Genesis 3, and there's a lot going on in that chapter. Significant, some of the big, most significant things in human history are happening, taking place in that chapter. And so next week, we're going to be looking at the origin of evil. And, and these two talks, the origin of death and the origin of evil, are actually two parts of the same talk. And so I would really encourage you to make sure that you, you, if you, you come this week and you, you really come next week and get the full picture of what's being spoken of. Because next week we're going to be addressing the, the reality of, of suffering through evil. And, and, and what I mean by evil is human intention to do evil things. Human intention to inflict pain, destruction, and death. That's evil. 
human intention to, to be so self-focused that we don't care about the well-being of people around us. That's evil. And next week, we're going to be answering the question, what is the origin of evil? This week, we're looking at the origin of death. And we're not looking at it in, in, in response necessarily to evil or any one act of evil, just the reality of death itself. Sickness and tsunamis and earthquakes and accidents and things that, that seem to, to create death which weren't necessarily the direct act of evil choice of humans. Now, for some of us, this topic can be quite theoretical. Some of us have the option and the, the privilege of being able to decide whether we want to think about death or not, how much we want to engage with this topic, how much we want to reflect on it. Some of us are in that place, and some of us have that privilege. And it's often the young amongst, amongst us that will find themselves in that space more than the, those who are older amongst us. And then there's some of us, and I think in this season, many of us have actually been moved more into the second group, where death isn't something that we get to choose to reflect on. Death is something that we have to reflect on. Death is something that, that has been pushed upon us and we need to reflect on it. Whether that's because you're facing death yourself or, the, or a loved one close to you or someone you know close to you is facing death or whether it's the reality of someone you know and love having passed away. And we just heard Tim, Tim Tucker's story, but if you know me, I've shared that um, this isn't a topic that I I can just not engage with. You see, the, two years ago, under two years ago, in fact, when I went on sabbatical a few months ago, the very first day of my sabbatical was the f- first year anniversary of the death of my brother, which wasn't due to evil directly. He made a silly choice. He tried to jump from one balcony to another balcony, and he fell. And that was tragic. My 33-year-old younger brother, in a moment, gone. And so death isn't something theoretical to me. It's something that's very real to me. And I remember a few weeks after Ali passed away, someone came to me who'd lost their sibling and said, you know what, this is not going to leave you. This is, you're going to wake up every morning and there's going to be a hole in the ground that you're going to have to walk around. And you'll get better and better and better at walking around it. And sometimes you'll walk around it in autopilot and you won't really think about it. And at other times you'll wake up and it will be a hole that you don't feel like you can walk around that day. That's what grief feels like. And a day hasn't gone by since the 8th of November, almost two years ago, where I haven't thought about my brother. And so death isn't a theory And I hope today that as I bring what I believe to be God's perspective on death, that for anyone who's dealing with death or facing death, that it would bring a sense of courage and hope that is real, lasting, and strong. I'm going to unpack what I think how a bit later, but one thing this message can't do is remove your pain. It's not going to do that. I'm not trying to do that. The pain of death we need to take to God. We need to process with Him, and we need to do it in community with people. And for those of us who have the privilege of not having to reflect on pain because it isn't something that has yet touched our lives very deeply or significantly, I hope today will cause you to have a bit of time of reflection, a bit of pause and go, what what are the implications of this? What does this mean for my life? And we're going to do that by, by looking at the reality that death feels like an intruder. We're going to ask who unlocked the door to death. And we're going to see what Jesus has done about death. So that first one, death, feels like an intruder. So now we've read through 
we've just read Genesis, and I'm going to get to Genesis a bit later, and, and really at the center of the message is, is that text. But before we get there, uh, I hope you just let me d- do something different. I'm, I'm going to make a point from human experience. I want to show us that if we just look at humans, our human relationship with death, it has something profound and deep to tell us about death. And if you're here investigating the claims of Christ, I really hope that this little investigation will be something that really is accessible to you because you might still be grappling with the Word of God. And we're going to get there and see what Jesus has to say about death. But for a short time, I just want to look at the human experience and go, what is our relationship to death? Tell us about death and maybe hint at about the reality of death. Because you see, when I speak to people about death and my own experience with it, is that it, it, it doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel like it belongs. But the problem with that is that it's also inadvertible. You can't prevent it from happening. It's going to happen no matter what. We, we might try to push it to the fringes of society. We might push it into hospitals and old age homes and hospices. We might, we might not want to think about it, but the reality is, and I find it strange, we always talk about the death rate going up or down, but the reality is the death rate for all generations has never changed. It's 100%. One in one people die. No one escapes the reality of death. Everyone dies. But generation after generation after generation, this has been true. And you would think that the reality of death being ineventable, ineventable, I'm struggling with that word this morning, would mean that over centuries of people experiencing it, it would become as natural as eating. We don't question food every time we eat it. We learn how to prepare it. We learn how to get ready for it. We, put, we set the table, we sit down, we eat it, and we're done. Why does death not feel as natural as something as normal as eating food? And if you spend any amount of time reflecting on death, this is going to ring true for you. I had this moment where I was with my group of four, three guys. We've done a lot of life together, the highs and lows. I'm deeply connected to them and their families, love them very much. And we were having this moment of reflection, I think it was a year or two ago, at Forry's over a beer. And I think it was my dad was struggling a bit with health and had a, had a health scare. And we were talking about death. And in that moment, Paul Morn, he's always... The, the quickest to get to the main point, goes, you know, one of, us is, one of us in this group is going to be first to die and one of them in this group is going to be last to die. I'm quite a competitive person, so I heard first and last. I said, I want to win. And I got all competitive. And in that moment, I was like, okay, what does winning look like? I was like, okay, first. I want to be first. That sounds like winning. I started to reflect on first, and I was like, oh, hang on. <laughs> Reflecting on first one to die, that, that's not very pleasant. And I found myself at 37 years old, the reality that I was going to die hit me for the first time properly. I remember the moment distinctly. It's engraved in my mind. I was like, oh, this really is going to happen for me. This really is going to be a part of my story. No matter how hard I try not to make it, it's going to be a part of my story. And then I started thinking questions of when, how old will I be? How will it happen? How do I want it to happen? It's going to happen, and I can't stop it from happening. And then I was like, okay, actually, this is uncomfortable. I don't want to think about this anymore. And I was like, okay, so, so dying first isn't winning. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe being the last one, man standing, that's winning. If, I, if I, I can beat these three guys, I'm pretty sure I'm healthier than them, do more exercise, maybe less than, than Mike. We can debate it later, guys. And, um, and I was like, sure. 
That doesn't sound like a good option either. That doesn't feel like winning. Because that means three memorials of close friends of mine, lifelong friendships and stories and history. Their families, and God willing, will be old when it happens, and God willing, there'll be grandchildren involved. And I started to reflect on the reality. It's three memorials and three generations of family, and it's, it's sad. I don't want to be the last one standing. I don't want to be first, and I don't want to be last. And I, I realized in that moment that no matter how you think about death, no matter what you reflect, no matter when it happens, death is tragic, and death feels like an intruder. Whether you have a young child who dies, we lament the reality that there's lost potential and life. Whether a middle-aged woman like Tim Tucker's wife dies, we grieve that, that there's no longer a mother for children and a wife for a husband and, and all her work colleagues and friends and community that she's built up over that life are, are going to grieve and feel the sense of loss. And then, if you've ever been to the memorial of, a, of an older person in, in their 80s, there's still grief. There are still people there weeping and crying. And I came to reflect that death in and of itself is painful. It doesn't matter when it happens. It causes grief and it causes pain. I've also come to realize in prepping for this and reflecting on our human experience of it is that pain is not the problem. A long, drawn-out death is terrible because of pain. But pain is actually something telling us, reflecting to us, pointing to us that we should be avoiding something, that, that the, end, the, end, the inevitability of where this pain leads is going to be death, and that should be avoided at all costs. I remember I was cooking last week, or it was actually a few weeks ago, and I put something really hot into the oven, and the oven was really hot, and as I did, the oven glove was torn, and my finger touched the grate, and as it touched the grate, there was an immediate reaction away from it, and I was still left with a massive blister on my finger, but if there hadn't been pain, I would have left my finger there, and the destruction would have been greater, so there's even something about the pain of death that tells us as humans that this should not be here. This is something that we should avoid. I remember about two weeks after Ali passed away, I had a quiet moment by myself in my house. I started weeping. I said, God, I want him back. This is not right. I want him back. I had such a sense of injustice in my heart because of the death of my brother. Why? If death is just simply as natural as any other human process, why such a sense of injustice? Such a sense of brokenness? Such a sense that this thing was an intruder? C.S. Lewis, uh, before I get there, I say all these things, these things, we avoid and almost ignore the reality of death as if it should not be there. No matter how inevitable death is, it never feels like a normal part of life. No matter how much we prepare or are ready for it, it always seems to be an intruder. The implications of death make us uncomfortable. And the pain surrounding the reality of death seems to cause us to cry out, this is not right. So it seems as if the human experience of death is one of, this is an intruder, this does not belong in our story and our experience. 
And C.S. Lewis is incredibly helpful. What he does is he reflects on our surprise at time. We get so surprised by the reality of time. Oh, wow, time is going so fast. Wow, you've grown up so quickly. And he says that relationship with the reality of how death cuts time short says something about us. It's very insightful and helpful. Read it with me. He says, we are so little concerned to time that we are astonished by it. How he's grown, we exclaim. How time flies as though the universal form of our experience were again and again a novelty. It is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the wetness of water, and that would be strange indeed, unless, of course, the fish were destined to become one day a land animal. Amazing. He simply says, our surprise at the finite, the, the, how finite time is and how fast it moves is like a fish being surprised that he's wet. It's a lovely saying. It's saying that maybe, just maybe, there is something inherently created in us that tells us that time should not be finite and life should not be cut short by death. He goes on to say this. It suggests that we have not always been or will not always be purely temporal creatures. It suggests we were created for eternity. Not only are we harried by time, we seem unable despite a thousand generations even to get used to it. We are always amazed by it, how fast it goes, how slowly it goes, how much of it is gone, where we cry, where has, has the time gone? We aren't adapted to it, not at home in it. If that is so, it may appear as a proof or at least a powerful suggestion that eternity exists and is our home. What a wonderful insight. He's saying we are surprised by death and death feels like an intruder and Time feels like it shouldn't be finite because maybe, just maybe, we were made with eternity in our hearts and eternity was meant to be our destination. Now we get to go to Genesis 2 and see that death, in fact, is an intruder and that this insight of the human experience on death is true. And that God would say that death is an intruder. And we have, to find, we have to ask ourselves this question. Who unlocked the doors for death? Genesis 2. You see, see, the first time we see death in Genesis, the first time we see death in the creation story is not in the creation story. It's not in the things being made, the, the spaces being made and then the spaces being filled. It's not in the garden with Adam and Eve. And there's no declaration of God that the inevitable outcome of Adam and Eve is death. That's not in the garden. It's not in God's creation story. It doesn't exist there. The first time we see it is in Genesis 2 as a warning where God says to Adam, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. See, the very first time that we hear about death is as a warning. And it's directly linked to the relationship that humanity has with God. Choose relationship, intimacy, and freedom in me. Or choose an act of self-autonomy and independence and separation from me. And what you will experience is spiritual death, separation from me, and physical death, the separation of your soul from your body. 
And tragically, we read in today's text, chapter 3, this. He said to the woman, did God actually say? We're going to see next week that the serpent, the enemy of God, is, is named the, the liar, the deceiver. This is number one, one name, is that he is one who deceives and lies. He said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of, in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. We start to see the deception unraveling. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can, if you eat that tree, be like God, independent and autonomous from him, not dependent on him. You won't die. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, suddenly the tree seems good for food, even though there's abundant other trees to choose from that are good for food. And that it was a delight to the eye. Suddenly this tree, the one is more shiny than all the others because it offers autonomy. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There's a lot going on in this text. And as I said, we're separating out death from evil. And next week, we're going to answer a lot of the questions that will arise out of this text as we deal with the origin of evil. So I really do encourage you to join us next week again. But I want to focus in on this text in relationship to the origin of death, answering that question, who unlocked the door to death? See, death, as I said, is not in the garden. It was not a part of the world that was created by God. It is an intruder. And sin unlocked the door for it. You see, Eve was deceived, but Adam willingly took the fruit. Adam, the one who had received the warning from God, and Adam, the one who God had said would be the representative of humanity, chose in that moment to act in unbelief. In a moment, he stopped believing the goodness of God. He stopped believing in the truth of God's words, and he sought freedom and independence from God. And what he chose in that moment was self and autonomy, thinking that it would offer him complete and utter freedom. And what he actually unleashed on the world was death. Separation from God and ultimately the decay of one's body and the world. And he experiences that in this moment as God moves towards him and casts him out of the garden, which represents perfect relationship with God. And in that moment, what Adam did was he drove the train tracks off the, he drove the train off the train tracks. What I mean by that is I want you to imagine a train. So a train is designed to run efficiently and effectively on tracks and is, goes from point A to point B and moves people there fairly quickly and at high speed. Now I want you to imagine, let's say, let's say um, Claremont train station all the way over to Fishhook on that side and you're on the train and you're going along and the train driver, not the designer of the train, but the train driver says, I'm running late, I'm going to make this thing go a bit faster than it was designed to go. And he cranks up the speed, cranks up the speed, trying to make up time and then you get to like, I don't know, those beautiful beaches along 
the coast there, St. James or one of those, and you've got those sharp bends, and you hit that at a speed that the train was never designed to go, and it derails. And that train goes flying off into the air through one of those old train stations that are out there. Cars are swerving, and you take a snapshot of the inside of the train. What do you see? You see bums leaving the seat. You see bags spilling over. You see people's coffee flying through the air. You see glass shattering and going into the train. And if you had to freeze frame and take a picture of that moment inside the train and go and show it to someone and say, look at this, they would say, what is going on? Who designed that? That is insane. And what we see in this world at the moment is a snapshot of a train that's been derailed from its tracks and death has been allowed to enter. And if you look at the world in this moment, you go, that is insane. Who designed it? You're asking the wrong question. The question to ask is, that is insane. What has gone wrong? And in answering that question, the train driver drove it off the tracks. Adam, in choosing sin, opened up the door for death to enter in, and the train track has left the tracks. Romans says this so clearly, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, death through sin, sorry, just as, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. You see that? Sin is the key that opened the door to death. I want to be pastorally clear here. I'm not speaking about your specific sin linked to your specific suffering or death. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about death entering the world generally. Destruction, decay, and the unwinding of the world as the way it should be entered because of sin generally through Adam. We now all experience death because of that moment. Next week, we're going to look at the evil entering in, and we're going to see that we, may, we do have a part in playing in opening that door, and we do have responsibility alongside Adam. But that's not for this week. And so now we know the answer to who unlocked the door. Adam unlocked the door when he allowed sin to enter the world. And then finally, Jesus has crushed death. Jesus has crushed death. I use that word crushed because that's the word the text we're in uses. But I also use that word crushed pastorally because I remember the moment that I went to see Ali and the thing that hit me the most was the finality of it, the hopelessness of it. There is nothing I can do. Death has crushed all my hope for my brother in that moment. It's done. It's stark and it's real. It's it's one of the few things in life where we go, I cannot fix this. I remember the words under my breath as I saw my brother was, my my little brother, I can't help you with this one. It just hit me with force. And so experiencing death can be something that feels crushing. And so I use the word crushed because the text uses the word crushed and we'll get there. But I also use the word crushed pastorally to say it is not true. Hope is not crushed in the moment of death. I experience that. Jesus has crushed death. It has lost hope, not us. 
Tim Tucker said something wonderful, profound, and deeply true and so important. He said in the moment that he experienced the death of his wife and was going through grieving, he had this encounter with God where he realized that God doesn't stand opposite him, in opposition to him in this moment. No, God is alongside him in that moment, next to him. And in that moment next to him, he's offering to him all the grace he needs, all the truth he needs, all the warmth and affection of a loving, caring, weeping father that he needs. Jesus is with him, alongside him, for him and not against him. And that is so important to understand about death. Because when we face it and experience it, it can automatically make God feel like he's against us. But in this text, we see that that is not true. God is not against us. Right in the moment where God is explaining to the serpent, to Eve, and to Adam what the consequences of this act would be and how it would unwind in history and what it would feel like and look like. Right in that moment, Jesus declares, God declares the reality, I will have the ultimate say over death. Death will not have the ultimate say. He does that when he speaks to the serpent. He says this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking of Eve, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, the offspring, will crush your head, and you, the serpent, will strike his heel. It's incredible. Right there in that moment, we see gospel reality. And then we jump to Genesis 5, and we see the unfolding of all this in that moment in Genesis 5, where it says this a number of times. It says, he lived X amount of years, and then he died, and it speaks about the generations after Adam. And it says, Adam and Seth and Enosh and Kenan and Michal and Jared and Enoch and Methuselah and Methuselah and Lamach and Noah. Just speed and confidence. That's how I got through that. Speed and confidence. Okay. And he says, but between each of those names, between each of those names, it says this, he lived X amount of years and then he died. He lived X amount of years and then he died. And we see generation after generation after generation, the curse of the fall playing out. Death seeming to have the victory, generation after generation. And then we see a few more generations later, whispers of God saying, no, there's one who's coming. He is coming. The one promised right at the beginning, right at the fall, he's coming. The one who will crush the head of death is coming. All the way, generation after generation after generation, till we have Mary give birth to Jesus. And suddenly in that moment, there is hope and stirring as this man walks a dusty road towards a cross, making huge claims. I am the one who will crush the enemies of God. I am the one who will crush the enemies of man that would stop you from encountering and being in relationship with God. I am the one who will deal with your rebellion and sin and the consequences of that finally, so that you can have free and willful access to the Father. For those of us who have been Christ followers, we know what it is. And I had the privilege of being able to prep my Easter Sunday message this week alongside this message. I got to reflect on resurrection, resurrection, resurrection power at that moment that Jesus went to the cross. And in that moment, Jesus went to, you see, Christian, I want you to understand this. That your access to God came at a huge price because there was a record of sin, a death that stood against you, that Satan, the enemy of God, and your enemy could have gone to God the Father and said, they are not worthy of 
access to you. You are holy and perfect and just, and it would be unjust for you to allow these people to come into your presence. And Jesus goes, that may be true, but the penalty for those acts is death, and I am going to go and hang on a tree. I'm going to go and hang on a cross. And I'm going to be the only one worthy to hang on that cross guilt-free. And I'm going to take on the sins of people. So that in that moment, the very weapon of the enemies of God and the very sting of death, our sin, was removed. And three days later, in power, Jesus is raised. And as he's raised with resurrection power, what he does, he says, I have the power to wrench this train mid-flight back onto the tracks. And so from now on, this train is headed towards redemption, restoration, and the kingdom of God. And death has not had the final say. That's the beauty of the cross. I'm very quickly going to share a story. We're going to go to communion, but before we go to communion, I want to share a story. I want to say, Christians, we are those that face death differently if we believe these things. I was sitting in the cafe when we still had a cafe. I'm not so sure. It was probably near the time we had to shut it down, sadly. And I was sitting in the cafe, and as I was sitting there, this woman came up the stairs, I think also probably in her mid-40s, and she tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, Hi, Ian. I had never met her, and she knew my name. I was like, she was like, Hi, Ian. So I was like, Hi. Um, and I'm busy working, and that's what's going through my head. And she goes, Can I sit down? And I'm like, Yes, because I'm a pastor. I have to say yes. But in my mind, I'm like, Typing, working, you know, that's going on in the barn. And then she goes, and she says, you know, Ian, as I was walking up the stairs, I was praying to God that you would be here because I really want to talk to you. Now I'm really panicking. Dead fan face, but panic inside. I'm like, what have I gotten myself into? But in that moment, I realized that I sat at a table I never sat at. I was sitting literally at the very first table that as she came up the stairs, she would see me. I normally hide, we used to hide in the corner of the couch where no one could see me to get stuff done. And she sat down, and then what unfolded was this amazing encounter with a woman that sticks with me. I I reflect on it often. She said, you know what, Ian? She had a bandana on. She said, I'm struggling with cancer, and I, I don't have long to live. And you preached a message the other day, and you spoke about Jesus and his goodness and his kindness and his gospel message and what he did on the cross and his resurrection power. And I want everybody at my memorial to hear about him and his goodness. And I know there are going to be lots of people who've never heard about Jesus. And I want you to tell them all about Jesus. And I want you to tell them how much hope I had in him. And I had this amazing conversation about her family and, and her concern for people. And, and all her concerns were for what she left behind. None of her concerns about what she was moving towards death. It was inspiring. And then she went off and... She said, you know what, I'm going away, and you're going away. It was around Christmas. That's right, it was around Christmas. She said, I'm going away, you're going away. Let's meet when we get back, and we'll talk about the memorial. And then she left, and she went outside, and um, she was sitting outside drinking coffee with a friend. And I, as I looked at her, this verse came to mind. I was like, this woman is living it in, the most real, in one of the most real realities of life, death. And this verse jumped to my mind. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It just She was living it. She believed that with all her heart. There were two things that stood out. Her courage. 
there was one thing very clear. She was not afraid of death. She was not afraid of death. Yes, she suffered. And yes, there were moments of, of pain, but she was not afraid of death itself. And you know in those moments that people aren't faking it because when you face death, all reason for pretending kind of fades away as insignificance and silly. I've seen that people don't fake courage in this time. They either have it or they don't. And she was full of courage as she trusted in the person and the finished work of Jesus. And then she had a wonderful expectation of joy. She was the happiest person in that cafe. She knew without a doubt that what she was headed towards and what she was about to pass through would mean that she would experience greater levels of joy than she could ever experience in this lifetime. And as I said earlier, all her concern was for her family and friends and the people she was leaving behind. And the number one thing she wanted to leave them with was the good message of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he'd done. incredible story of a woman facing death with the reality of what Jesus has done rooted in her heart. And what it produced in her was courage, confidence, and joy, even in the face of death. In that moment where I felt hopeless before Ali, I remember that what jumped into mind. Jesus, death does not have the final say. You do. I trust my little brother to you, and I trust him with you more than anybody else in this world. Peace. Comfort. Yes, grief, but not despair. Let's go to a time of communion and reflect on these things. I'm going to just move over here. I think after a message like that, it is easy to lead into a moment of communion because I think... (laughs) It's so at the center of the reflection of of the topic of death. And Jesus, before he would go to the cross, we know, instituted this moment where he would say, my people, I want you to actually orientate so much of your community and your life and your being around this meal. I want you to eat together. And when you eat together, I want you to reflect on these realities. So I'm going to ask that we get things ready. This bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the juice representing the spilled blood of Jesus, significant sacrifice at great cost so that the sting and poison of death could be removed. I want us all to hear this. Because of this, what we're remembering now, the serpent's fangs have been removed and the poison glands have been removed. He can still... We still experience death, but it doesn't have the final say. And resurrection power reveals to us that the train is not ultimately and fully for all eternity destined to be off the tracks. It's actually back on the tracks and moving towards restoration and redemption. And there's a part, there's a time period now where we will taste heaven and we will taste the reality of the fall together. But there's a time coming where it will be dealt with once and for all. This is where I'm going to land and we're going to sing in song and worship now. But this was my prayer, my hope. That as a community that we would 
be witnesses in our individual personal lives and as a community of the resurrection of Jesus and his power and his goodness and his kindness by the way in which we face death with courage, hope, and joy. That we ourselves would be in the very facing of death, a witness, he's alive. I have no fear. I'm going to pray that God would do that in us and then I'm going to ask that we take communion together at home and here and reflect on that and make that a personal prayer of your own. Father, would you do something unique and wonderful in us? God, these topics, this topic, death, is not something we like to talk about. It's not something that is comfortable. And in many ways, that's a good thing because it's an intruder. But I pray, God, that we would be sober about the reality that it will take place in our lives in some way or form. And God, we don't want to fear anyone with death, but we do want us to think soberly about these, this reality. And I pray, God, that the very opposite would happen, that you would do something in us as a community that wouldn't fill the reflections of fear with, on death with fear, but you would fill the reflections on death with courage and hope and confidence in you, Christ, the one who died and took away its thing, the one who rose again and has wrenched the train back onto the tracks. Jesus, would you do something that changes us at the depths of who we are, forms us at the depth of who we are, so that when the time comes, your grace would meet us, the truth of your word would meet us, the truth of who you are and what you've done would meet us, and we would be a people of joy and courage and confidence. Would you do that in us, Father, we pray. Let's do this now together.